This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan. And this is just so cool to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas. I mean, what we're talking about today is kind of super big. It's like super big times six. But <laughs> I get to talk about it with these really interesting, accomplished people, people of goodwill, people who come in good faith. And it is an honor to announce that our program is now part of the Democracy Group, which is a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Now, I'm going to say the typical podcast thing. Remember to subscribe, follow, rate, review. But, you know, it, it really is a, a big deal, um, you know, especially for us independent podcasts. When you subscribe to our program or follow us, depending on which app you're on, uh, not just rate us, but if the, your app allows you to give us a review, it really makes a big difference. I, I, it's been super cool, like uh, encouraging to see our little program is rising up in the rankings. It allows other people to discover us. Really, you're, the little thing that you do where hopefully you hit the five stars and, and leave comments, uh, leave an actual review, it really does make a difference and I appreciate that. And we appreciate hearing from you. And uh, it allows folks to be included in the types of conversations like the one we're having today with Dr. Jean Twenge. Dr. Jean Twenge, PhD, is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University and has written extensively on generational change including many scientific papers, several books, including her most recent book one, uh, her most recent one titled Generations, which we'll be discussing at length today. Dr. Twenge's work, this really struck me, Dr. Twenge's work is on generational differences and technology is based on a database of 39 million people. So I, I just have to say that again, 39 million people. I pointed out because I sometimes get into conversations with folks who say, no, man, I've done my research and that, often means, um, you know, I talked to some guy at the gas station, <laughs> I don't know, but 39 million people. So that's a big deal. Dr. Twenge, this, having read so much of your work and been following a lot of your interviews, this is such a, an honor to be spending time with you today. How are you doing? You must be very tired from talking to 39 million people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very lucky I did not have to collect that data myself. Well, in all seriousness, so that must be something relatively new to as opposed to when you first started your research, doing your work, um, it, when you were in undergrad, graduate work, doing your PhD work, must be very different to be able to have access to that scope of data. So how, how is that different and how do you do that? Yeah, we're in the age of big data now. That's what's so amazing is there are these enormous surveys. Um, a lot of them are government funded and they go back decades. So we can compare people at the same age, but at different points in time to really dial down into what's really a generational difference, what has really changed about young people or middle-aged people, you know, how are they really different? Um, and it is it is uh, wonderful to have access to that much data compared to, you know, how I started, which was, you know, giving about 150 of my fellow students at the University of Chicago a couple of questionnaires. Um, and realizing that they look different from the 1970s test manual. That's kind of how I got started, you know, with thinking about generations. And then um, did meta-analyses for a while. So that was, um, you know, a lot of work um, in libraries and other places. And now it's so amazing to have these 
nationally representative data sets that you can download. Now, it still worked. There's still a lot of um, you know, behind the scenes sausage making when you have to merge these data sets and do these analyses, but um, at least I'm not handing out millions of questionnaires. You know, one of the things I was curious about with that that large of a data set is how how you read it. You know, it's not like you're reading individual stories, um, e even with a thousand people, which, you know, for a lot of folks, that would sound like a pretty, pretty substantial study. But with uh, that large of a data set, how do you begin to analyze it? I guess quantitative is one thing, but qualitatively, how, how, what are the differences there? Yeah, so these are all quantitative data sets. So they give, um, they're, they're surveys. So they ask certain questions. I mean, I'll just use as an example, I looked at mental health quite a bit in uh, in this new book. And, you know, surveys handle this differently. This is one of the uh, great reasons it's, it's wonderful to draw from more than one because so one that asks about um, mental distress in six questions about, you know, how you're feeling, if you feel anxious or down. Then there's another that has eight questions that are a standard measure of depression. Um, then there's another that just has a really general question. How many times in the last month did you have poor mental health? And it defines it by talking about, you know, that you were stressed or, or felt sad. So they all ask it in, in somewhat different ways. Yet the results are pretty similar across these data sets, even though they ask these questions in different ways. Um, and that's, it's really nice because then you can get a much broader picture of what's really going on with more people using different methods. Right, right. You also talk early in the book about the difference between, and I forget the acronym that you used, but sometimes the tendency is to say, well, that's a generalization, you know, and you used an illust illustration of uh, seatbelts. You know, oh, my friend ended up getting strangled by the seatbelt. So could you could you make that distinction for us, the generalities versus uh, specific situations? And what's the acronym again? Forgive me for, for forgetting. Yeah, well, you know what? To be truthful, I forget the acronym <laughs> pretty much all the time as well. Um, but the concept is what's important, right? So there, there's, a, there's a couple things here. So um, in, in with stuff on generations, really with anything about group differences, um, there's the standard criticisms. And one of them is, oh, you're stereotyping. Well, if you're using actual data, you're not. You're looking at average differences. And yes, it's true. Any one individual is not necessarily going to fit the average. So that's, but that again, that's true of any study of any group. It's true for gender differences, regional differences, as well as for generations. Then there's the other thing of, and this is the one where the, um, uh, easy to forget acronym comes in, which is the idea that if you can think of one exception, then that means the average isn't true. I know a Gen Xer who's not cynical. So <laughs> that means, you know, you don't have any kind of average difference in cynicism or lack of trust among Gen Xers, but you do. And that shows up in in surveys. So it's the idea that you can disprove something by by finding an exception, which of course is not true, because of course there's plenty of variation within each generation. But again, that's true of any study of group differences. Yeah, you know. So as I was reading through the book, I, I by I don't know the by the time I got to the the chapter on millennials, I I remembered uh, a, an experience I had about five or ten years ago, and it, I was at a wedding. And um, the bride and groom were both in their mid 
to late 30s. So, of course, my mother, being the perfect Jewish mother from New York, was like, you know, I never I thought they would never get married. I thought he was gay, you know. Um, but at one point in the wedding, I it was after dinner and people were dancing and people my parents generated. My parents were born in, in 47. So they're like on the uh, beginning side of, of boomers. And uh, my aunts and uncles are a little older than them. They were dancing, but they were dancing like the Lindy or, you know, the cool ones were doing the hustle. You know, uh, my friends and my cousins, we were dancing together, but we were dancing not like a formal uh, ballroom dancing. And then the millennials, the kids that were the um, bride and groom age and a little bit younger, they were dancing, but it was almost like they were in this glass silo of themselves. And like they were in their imaginations, they were Kid Rock or Beyonce, you know, like almost uh, in their own minds. And then I started looking around, where are my kids? Where are my kids? And they were all sitting by themselves, each on their phones, doing nothing. Mm. <laughs> so, there you go. So I, I so okay. That's so gener- I, that is generations in a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> and I I remember being very struck by this too. So you know, when I was in high school, I would go to to, to dances, and you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so that you know we would we would dance in a certain way. And then I think it was like maybe a family reunion or anniversary party or something. And I see my parents dance, and it's like this this thing, yeah. like what, you know? But that's and then my dad asked, you know, had they dance with me? And I'm like, well, I don't even know how to do this. I have no idea how to do this. <laughs> right, right. So, it, you know, you start the book, even before the book starts, you start in a really touching way. Um, you, in, in the dedication, you said, for my parents, Joanne and Steve, yeah. witnessed the birth of six generations, and for my children, Kate, Elizabeth, and Julia, who will see many more. I was, yeah. So is that why you do what you do, trying to understand people in your life and the differences and similarities among us? It really is about understanding, you know, um, and I, I think that is that's really the, the overall goal of, of my work and this book in particular is I think I think we're living in a time now where generation gaps are just as big or even bigger than they were, say, in the late 60s between boomers and their parents. And there's just as much misunderstanding and and um, miscommunication. So I think this is a, a time when we need to understand each other better to step away from some of the stereotypes and misperceptions, you know, what are the real differences? How can we communicate better? How can we make those connections? How can we understand the generations older than us and younger than us? Um, I think as a Gen Xer, Gen X is the middle child of generations. (laughs) So maybe that's part of uh, my motivation here is just realizing that, we need to try to take each other each other's perspective more. Yeah. And I've always there's there's often a fascination of the older generation trying to understand the younger. Of course, they also criticize them a lot. They're also <laughs> trying to understand them. And then younger people sometimes there's a tendency to maybe they want to understand the older generation because it's their parent or their boss. But there's also the, the dismissive idea of like you guys are done, and maybe we don't need to understand you. But I think we could all be better served to, to try to have that empathy ac- across the spectrum. So getting very specific, what about young Gene before you were Dr. Twenge? Mm-hmm. At what point did you start thinking about these questions? Was it around your when you were 16 looking around your mm-hmm. Thanksgiving table or was it something that you arrived at later in grad uh, undergraduate graduate work? H- how did you come to this line of study? I mean, I can remember in high school being fascinated by some of the history of the, you know, late 60s, early 70s. So when 
the boomers were young adults and things were changing. But it, it really happened um, in when I was an undergraduate. So I was working on my college honors thesis at the University of Chicago. And I was really interested in gender and gender roles. I'd been interested in that for, for quite a long time. So I gave a questionnaire to um, about 150 of my fellow students that measures, you know, stereotypically, you know, traits that are stereotypically associated with one gender or another. So the masculine scale, kind of a misnomer these days, but it has things like being a leader and being assertive. And my fellow female students were scoring very high on that scale in the early 90s compared to the 1970s test manual. Mm. And that made sense when I thought about it. At first, I had to make sure I was scoring it right because, you know, I was an undergrad. I had to make sure I knew what I was doing. But it was. It was correct. And then um, the next year, as a grad student at the University of Michigan, I gathered um, the other journal articles, other scientific studies that had used the same questionnaire since the 70s. And there was a virtually straight line mm. for average scores for college students, um, for both men and women, particularly for women, in those those traits of identifying with being a leader or being assertive. It just went up from the early 70s to the early 90s. And it makes total sense given the changes in women's roles over that time. So that was the, the first generational study that I did. And then I, I realized that um, this was a great topic. You know, it was the early 90s. People were talking about Gen X, but really not using a whole lot of data to do it. Yet um, it was something that looked at the influence of culture on people. And it really hadn't been studied much in psychology, quite to my surprise. Right. So as a, as a grad student, that's what you want, something that's very interesting, but it really hasn't been studied that much. It's very rare to find that. But stuff on generational differences fit that description. You know, when I was looking at your background, one of the things that surprised me, I was expecting to see an emphasis on sociology more so than psychology. But are the two intertwined, really? Is it did you is it a parallel path or is one very distinct from the other? So I was actually a double major as an undergraduate. Sociology is where I started. And then I kind of added in psychology. Um, It's funny. Academia is weird. It for decades has said we want people to be multidisciplinary because that makes sense, you know, to approach things from, from many different things. They don't actually want you to be multidisciplinary. <laughs> um, it makes it much harder to get a job and to publish in journals. Um, so I am a psychologist. That is how I was trained, but it is true that the study of generations historically has been within sociology. So I, I really use both fields in my approach. So uh, speaking of multidisciplinary, before, I'm going to get deep into the book here, but I got to ask you about charts. I was totally geeking out on your charts. <laughs> do you do your own charts? Like, how do you how do you come up? Do you have like an EVP yeah. of chart making, or how do, how's that, how do you do all that? Oh my god, yeah, I am an idiot. I make my own charts. <laughs> I really awesome. don't know how else to put it. I, I I remember talking to my editor about this because it's one of those things that I I yes, I really probably should have somebody else do it, but um. It's so essential to how I write yeah. to have the chart in there to show the data because, you know, that I, that idea that a picture is worth a thousand words. Yeah. I think a chart's worth 2,000, maybe even more because oh. what you can convey in terms of um, the data and the change and the trends in a ch- chart is just so far beyond what you can, what you can write in a yeah. page or two. So, um, and yeah, so I, I do the analyses. That's actually my favorite part. 
you know, I, I, I love doing the analyses, even though it can be very time consuming and frustrating sometimes, and then making the making the charts. It really is something, you, you know, you flip through the book and I'm thinking, you know, it's it's a big undertaking, undertaking. Yes. I mean, even as a reader, let alone putting it together, and I flip through, I'm like, okay, there's a lot of charts in here, but it's kind of a trap because I found myself just kind of settling on charts and like, it would take me, instead of 10 minutes per page, I would just sit on a chart and just like really absorb the information. But it, it really is terrific uh, because from a learning standpoint, you're digesting information from an articulated standpoint, but then you're digesting it from a, um, a visual standpoint, an illustrated right. standpoint. So it's, it's really helpful to get a grasp on exactly what we're talking about. Um, so the book, Generations, really is, I, I, I mean, not just because you're here, but I think this is going to be one of those books that's going to be continually referenced by other academics, other leaders to, to help us get a better understanding of not just this moment in time, but these half a dozen generations um, and how we're relating. And it also, by the end of the book, looking into the future. But um, so, so let's get into it a little bit. One of the most striking conclusions you come to, and this really su surprised me, um, that what shapes generations is not so much historical events so much as technology. So I was ho hoping you could describe how you arrived at the conclusion and, and maybe give us some illustrations of technical technological advances helping to shape a generation over and above major events. Yeah, because the, the classic theory of generations is that major events like wars and economic depressions and recessions and pandemics, that that is really what shapes a generation. That's where their attitudes and values and personality traits come from. Um, but I've I've always found that somewhat lacking. And with, with this book, I kind of managed to all put it together. This is really the book that I've been preparing to write my whole career. Um, but you know, starting with my first book, Generation Me, about the millennials, it was clear that millennials weren't really shaped by the events that they may have that they that they experienced and talk about, say like 9-11 or or the Great Recession. Yes, absolutely those had an impact on them, but it doesn't really define who they are, for example. What really defines who, who millennials are, what they really grew up with, was individualism, this mm. cultural system of individualism more focused on the self and less on others that had been building since the boomers. It had a big the, the individualism had a big impact on, on Gen X as well. And then with my next book about Gen Z, I was realizing some of the direct effects of technology, so smartphones and social media and how big of an impact that had on, t on today's teens and young adults. And then in that book, too, I started to explore something called the slow life strategy that people just take longer to grow up now, that kids are less independent, teens are less likely to get their driver's license, to go out of the house without their parents, to have a paid job, to go out on dates, young adults take longer to get married and have kids and settle into a career. And middle-aged people look and feel younger than their parents or grandparents did at the same age. So even though at first I was thinking about this in terms of teens, it's that the developmental trajectory slowed down for everybody. So in kind of trying to put, put all these things together, all these influences, I realized technology is at the root. It's at the root of all of those things. Technology has meant better medical care and long lives. That's what leads to the slower life. And then technology makes individualism possible, that it 
allows people to be more independent, to have the time to reflect on themselves um, and to be able to um, flatten or at least try to wipe away a lot of um, the those differences and prejudices based on group membership, which is part of individualism. Technology helps with that too. And then there's the direct effects of it. Because you really think about what makes living now so different from living 200 years ago or 100 years ago or 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. It's not It's not major events. That's not what's had the biggest impact on day-to-day life. It's technology. Mm-hmm. We live our lives in a completely different way now compared to past decades because of technological advancements. Yeah. Yeah. As you refer to them in the book, Technology's Daughters, Individualism and the Slower Life Strategy. Mm-hmm. But I was also struck by the fact that it's not necessarily a straight line. And, and maybe I was just mm-hmm. focused on our generation um, with our version of slower life strategy. So could you expound on that? Not necessarily the straight line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the slow life strategy, if you take it generation by generation, has kind of gone in, in fits and starts and it ends up converging eventually but um so let's take you know one one example it starts with boomers who start to get married a little bit later than the silent generation right before them and they definitely have their kids a little bit later um than than the silence then with gen x things get a little bit different um Gen X teens were doing adult things very early, maybe even in many cases earlier than boomers. So um, Gen Xers started to you know, have sex earlier. So the teen pregnancy rate went way up, for example. Um, so Gen X had this shortened childhood, but then they had this long adolescence because they also got married later. I had kids later, settled into, into careers later. And then for millennials, things start to snap back into place where they had a longer childhood and a longer adolescence and longer young adulthood. And then that accelerates with Gen Z, where you really see the things that um, parents of teenagers have noticed. But if you don't have teen kids um, are often a surprise to people that teens are now actually less likely than previous generations to have sex, to drink alcohol, to have a paid job, to have a driver's license. All of those things that adults do and children don't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and once we start to dig into the specific generations, there were also a number of surprising uh, observations. For example, just starting with the first one that you look at, well, you, you mentioned the greatest generation, but the first one you really dive into are the silence. Uh, I always attributed huge movements like women's rights, civil rights, gay rights to boomers. But when we look at it, it's really the silent generation. It was, yeah. So you think about, about all of those changes that happened um, in the 1960s and 1970s, civil rights movement, the feminist movement, uh, the movement for gay rights. Those were, for the most part, led by, by silence and sometimes greatest generation. Um, boomers were sometimes participating, but they weren't the initiators of it. So uh, one way to illustrate this is two members of the silent generation, Martin Luther King Jr. and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, yeah, uh, Dr. King and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, the, uh, the, the silent generation, civil rights, uh, women's rights, even before she was a Supreme Court justice, uh, yes. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was leading cases that, that made uh, huge 
uh, huge progress. And even to this day, you know, President Biden is silent generation. So that was one of the um, one of the surprising things. Uh, we're, so we're, was there anything about our gen? Are we good at anything? Gen X? Are we good at anything? <laughs> I'll tell you, even though Gen X is my generation, that was in many ways the most challenging chapter to write. Yeah. Um, you know, because we're kind of, we're smaller, smaller generation by numbers. Um, we're also kind of a transition between, you know, boomers and, and millennials. But, you know, we do represent some changing points in terms of um, away from boomers idealism toward a more practical focus. Um, sometimes that comes out in ways like more materialism, less trust. Um, one thing I think does also really distinguish Gen X, which is a little bit more fun, is our love of shared pop culture. So I think we were really the last generation to have a unified pop culture experience. So right. we love our pop culture. We love talking about it. Um, and that was a really fun part of the book to write. Yeah, growing up, uh, latchkey kids go, going and watching uh, Brady Bunch reruns, uh, exactly. and then and then feeling really cool early teens, and I want my MTV. And it's you know when I go back to my high school reunions, it's all to your point. It's so much of it is a shared a shared experience. Um, in terms of millennials, one thing I was really surprised is that they're actually doing better financially than prior generations. The impression is very different. So can you, can you explain why the prevailing impression is different than the reality? Yeah, that's a little bit of a mystery. So um, just for background, median incomes for 25 to 44 year olds are at all time highs, and that is corrected for inflation. Um, the St. Louis Fed has done studies of wealth building and millennials are known neck and neck with Gen X because there'd been the expectation for a long time because of the Great Recession that millennials were not going to do as well as their parents. They're going to be a lost generation in terms of wealth. Um, and that was true for a while after the Great Recession, but it's not true anymore. So I think that that perception was a little bit outdated. But I think the reason it didn't get updated, a couple things. I mean, first, there's some stark realities that those gains in income are almost primarily, almost all driven by women, which is good news in a lot of ways. Uh, however, then if you're thinking about a heterosexual couple and they want to have kids, then you got to pay for daycare. So that's that's you know a, a burden if you're going to keep both of those those uh, you know relatively high incomes. And then there's also a couple other pieces, of course, college loans, although that hasn't necessarily um, held millennials back building wealth, it's probably actually one of the reasons why their median incomes are higher is because of um, more going to college. So there, you know, there are certainly some challenges in there economically, but even with that, there's a huge difference between how well millennials are actually doing according to, you know, government statistics. I mean, if, uh, you know, occasionally, not even just occasionally, a lot of times, anytime I or people, other people talk about this online, the immediate response is you must be wrong. And, you know, my my response to that without, you know, trying trying to trying to hold back from being too snarky, but truthfully, take it up with the US Census Bureau. You know, take it up with the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's where these stats are coming from. Um, these are pretty reliable sources. Um, and we we know that that these 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 numbers are are really solid. So why is there that disconnect? And I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, a lot of it, I think, is that online discussions 
tend to bias toward the negative. Mm. So on social media, things that are negative and anger provoking get clicks. Bad news gets clicks. Good news does not. Uh, so the, the those studies from uh, the St. Louis Fed are a great example. When they said millennials are going to be a lost generation for wealth, that got all kinds of coverage. Yeah. And they came out, you know, four or five years later and said, actually, millennials have caught up. Nobody really paid attention. And I think it's just part of, of our online environment now, our social media environment that, you know, you you can't, at least on on, on Twitter and those other types of platforms, you can't go on and, and say, you know, actually, I, I'm doing really well. My generation's actually doing really well. It's like it's not the norm. The norm is complaint and anger and everything is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. As, as a um, trained psychologist, you, you can appreciate, I've been reading some books on neuroscience and what's referred to as the negativity bias. I, th I think I'm using that term correctly that we tend to. And it's interesting because one of the things that really impressed me about your work is your interaction with other academics. Uh, you were being criticized in the mid 20 teens when you were first putting out a uh, an early theory about the connection between the iPhone social media, the, the pervasiveness of the iPhone and social media and our mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. um, so if you, I'll, I'll let you uh, tease out what some of those criticisms were and how you reacted to them. Uh, but that, that was, uh, that, that really struck me how your, the ongoing dialogue and in, in a way it seemed to sharpen your game as, as uh, an academic. Yeah, I think I think it did. And, you know, when it's done well, that's what academic debate is supposed to do. Um, I don't think this particular debate was done particularly well. We could get to that um, because I think a lot of it was ended up being counterproductive in some ways. But um, that is what it can do and did to an extent do was help. Yeah, sharpen thinking. Uh, make sure those arguments are solid. I mean, this is ideally how how it's supposed to work. Let's let the ideas fight it out, and the strong ones will survive. So, um, it you know, this really starts with uh, looking at the mental health surveys for teens, primarily. Where you know, I've been working with these big surveys for a long time. They're nationally representative. They're big. Um, a lot of them get a sample of thousands, you know, every year. And I started to see these sudden changes that more and more teens started to say they felt lonely and left out, that they felt like they couldn't do anything right, that their life wasn't useful. They didn't enjoy life. Those last three are classic symptoms of depression. Then it started to show up in other places too. Clinical level depression among teens ended up doubling between 2011 and 2019. So even before the pandemic, so we're not even talking about you know, the adolescent mental health crisis being due to the pandemic. Nope, it was happening almost 10 years before the pandemic when it started to rise. So, and I, I mentioned just, just three indicators. There's about 10 more. It's extremely consistent. It shows up in behaviors, not just symptom reports. So things like emergency room admissions for self-harm, emergency room admissions for suicide attempts, completed suicides, I mean, you name it, it all started to go wrong around the same time in the early 2010s. So that, of course, begs the question of why, what happened? Yeah. What happened around that time that could explain that? 
And um, at first, I had no idea. It was misaligned with economic trends. That's when the U.S. economy finally started to improve. It was hard to think of any event that happened then and then kept going in the same direction that had a big effect on teens. But the end of 2012 is when the first time that the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. It's also in some of these same surveys when social media use moved from optional to virtually mandatory among teens. It's around the time Facebook bought Instagram. Social media started to take on its more current character of being more image focused, um, you know, focusing on likes and followers in a way that it wasn't before. So there's a lot of things happening around this time. And then for teens anyway, they also start spending less time with their friends face to face and less time sleeping. Mm. So that more time online, less time with friends face to face, less time sleeping. That's pretty objectively not a good recipe for mental health. Right. So then with with critics, there was the idea of, well, can it be something else? You know, you can't prove that it's the smartphone or social media because you know, it's not an experiment. It's correlational. That's absolutely true. We have to go on the data that we've got. You cannot randomly assign people to be born at different times. You know, you can't do the random assignment experiment. So we have we have to go on what we've got. But um, that was good because I think that spurred me and others to think about alternative explanations. And there really wasn't anything else that fit. You know, there right. were a few other things that changed at that time, like say the opiate epidemic. But that that was regional. The trend in mental health was national. And even more, the opiate epidemic, that was middle-aged people. It wasn't teens. Mm. So it just it didn't fit in the way that that smartphones did. Plus, smartphones and social media and all these changes, there was a fundamental change in how teens spent their time outside of school. If anything's going to have an impact, it's going to be that. It's something about their day-to-day lives. So that really fit. Um and then the other the other thing that, that that critics would bring up is the the link among individuals in terms of how much time people spend on social media and depression. And I think the that that took several years to work itself out. And the the, the data is now pretty clear on that. That um, as a general rule, those who are using social media um, to excess, say five or more hours a day, are about twice as likely to be depressed as those who aren't using it very much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because if you look at prior generations, you would look at the silence, for example, and one would think that if it is based on historic events, folks that are born during the Depression and came to their you know, early years during World War II, many lost their parents, um, that that would affect mental health in a huge way. But it really wasn't. It turns out that mm-hmm. if you look at um, uh, silence at specific age groups and how they dealt with other future uh, historic events, uh, the mental health of millennials and even more so with Gen Z was much greater and it was tied directly to um, these technological uh, events or technological advances. So one of the things I did want to add, well, okay, so I'd be remiss if I did one of my favorite quotes in the book, if I didn't ask you about this, (laughs) going back to millennials for a second, um, and speaking of how sexually active, this is going to be the one take. I I know that my my friend who does the uh, social media, this is the one that she's going to take. Anyway, and speaking of how sexually active millennials are, you mentioned the existence of dating apps and how few worry about the morality of premarital sex. And you being the renowned, very erudite, highly educated individual, 
that you are, the way you put it was, it should be a formula for, a formula for lots of boinking, but it's not. <laughs> Help you me understand. I, yeah, do you, do you know where I, you know where I got that? So this is my my Gen X roots and my my pop culture coming out. Uh, my favorite TV show of all time, which is Moonlighting. So Bruce Willis's character, David Addison, that is his chosen verb for the human sexual act. And that's where I got that. Okay. Lots of boinking. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yes. On a more serious note, uh, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, uh, it it really did get me thinking, um, the, it's about life goals. Uh, Mm -hmm. specifically intrinsic versus extrinsic life goals. So first, can you explain the difference? And then could you provide examples of how this plays out across the different generations? Yeah, so um, there's some great background in in psychology on this about extrinsic goals, things like money, fame, and image, and then intrinsic goals, self-understanding, helping others, relationships. And that's one of the fundamental shifts that really occurred, especially uh, between boomers and Gen X that continued with millennials um, and Gen Z is more of a shift toward extrinsic values. So being more practical, focusing more on the end outcome rather than these more abstract things, which is where you know boomers were, were more comfortable. Things like uh, developing a meaningful philosophy of life. Most boomer college students said that was important. Um, once you get to Gen X, and later, most said it wasn't. Um, becoming very well off financially, a much more extrinsic and practical goal, um, was not as important to boomers. And then in uh, samples more recently of uh, late millennials and then Gen Z um, has been at all-time highs. About 82 83% of incoming college students have said that that goal was important. Wow. Um, yeah, and especially – you know, we're it, it ties so many things together of what you talk about in the book. For us, the slow life strategy, you know, I hit an age, I guess it was a combination of things. There was a historic event called the pandemic um, that forced a lot of us to hit the brakes on life. And it came for us at a time when that often naturally happens. You're transitioning into a different stage of your vocational life, right? So it got me thinking about, well, I'm not young, but I'm not old. I know I look really old. I don't look a day older than 78. I know that's what people tell me. Anyway, but in all seriousness, you know, Lisa and I, we're not old. So what does this next chapter look like? And it had a lot more to do with uh, David Brooks wrote a book a few years ago called The Second Mountain. And it was it was about very much about that, where we want to we have a better understanding of what we're good at and what we enjoy. Um, but what gives us a sense of meaning? And I think it speaks to that concept of intrinsic uh, life goals. So it's interesting. Now, I did want to talk a little bit about the future because you do really tie it all together. Um, So if you could talk a little bit about the future of work, the future of family, the future of politics, doing this work, it really gives you a good launching pad to take a a decent look, at least into the near and uh, not not too distant future. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so that's the last chapter of Generations. And with that, um, I I drew from a lot of sources, some of which was, uh, you know, newspaper articles, qualitative, you know, people speculating, but then also What's great uh, about having data on teens is it does give you a little bit of view 
into the future. You can get data on 13-year-olds, <laughs> then you can kind of see what's coming. And that's what some of these big data sets have. So um, with work, the biggest shift over the generations, when, you, when, you, when you're looking at 18-year-olds who are talking about you know, filling out surveys about what they want out of a job and what, what values are important to them, the biggest generational shift is work-life balance. So we've heard about that for a while. So that yeah. looks like it's going to stick around as the theme. The other thing that was really striking for Gen Z, who's now almost all the young employees being hired, is that they really want to help other people. So that as a goal overall and also in a job um, where they can be the way the survey items worded is directly helpful to others. And that's um, where they really stand out compared to previous generations. So I think organizations that can you know, pay attention to that, that empathy in this generation um, will serve themselves well um, and not focus on some of the kind of you know, stereotypes or myths in this area, the idea that they all want to make friends at work. They've got plenty of friends on Instagram. So generations um, more recently, they're actually less focused on making friends at work, actually a little less focused on having a job that's interesting, uh, that's still important to them, but even but it's less, less important yeah. than previous generations. So, but that helping piece um, is really striking. Then um, for family, like one of the biggest considerations is to look at the birth rate. And so the birth rate has been going down for quite a while. At first people thought it was because of the great recession, but then it kept going down. And is it going to keep going down? And I think it clearly is because again, you look at that survey data, teens, um, turned a corner again with that transition between millennials and Gen Z, Gen Z is less likely to say that they want to have children. And millennials were just as likely as Gen Xers and Boomers to say at 18 that they wanted to have kids and then they didn't. Gen Z is not even saying that at 18. So I think that birth rate is going to continue to go down. That's going to have big ripple effects for demographics, um, families, marketing, you know, just everything across across the board, um, you know, may see some changes in that, in those, those areas. Um, I have a couple of things in there on just changes in consumer behavior. Uh, I you know, birth rate's a good place to start with some of that. Um, maybe because I live in Southern California, I think about real estate a lot. Yeah. And I, uh, I think that um, there will still continue to be a demand for larger houses, even though people have smaller families. If we still have the idea of working from home or even doing hybrid, um, maybe you still want four bedrooms that then you have, you know, a master bedroom, a guest room, and then two for offices. Mm. So I think we're still going to want larger houses. Interesting. So so much, uh, so much there. What about the future of politics? Are we always going to be this divided or is there some light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, that that's really the question, right? Um, we can definitely see that that political polarization even among our youngest voters. So it shows up among among those eighteen year olds filling out those surveys, where they are also more polarized, um, just just like older adults are. So um, not anytime soon is the unfortunate answer in terms of you know the the end of of any polarization. Um, I do think there's opportunities there. Um, I you know. There's certainly some signs in the surveys of challenges around free speech, 
but there's also a lot of indication that a lot of people are, are sick of some of those debates. Mm. So I think going forward, we may see more progress around that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, half the reason of uh, your, your reasoning behind calling the youngest generation right now after Gen Z pollers, uh, yes. partly for the polarized caps, but partly for the polarization. So yeah. at the very end of the book, you say this is the challenge for all six generations in the decades to come to find a way for technology to bring us together instead of driving us apart. But I want to ask you a very specific question about that, which I won't give away the end. I kind of did give away the end of the book, but I want to ask you our TPNR question, talk politics and religion without killing each other question. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, have better conversations with, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences, people who think differently than we do, who are born in different generations than we are, yeah. um, who have different beliefs, and get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other, or is it even possible? I think it is possible. And I think one way to think about doing that is your venue. Are you having that conversation with that person on Facebook, or are you having that conversation with that person in the same room face-to-face? Because those are gonna be two very different conversations, and you're gonna be a lot more likely to really learn learn from each other and to not be aggressive and in your words you know kill each other if you're <laughs> in person if you're in person i mean we know this from so much research in psychology that when people are anonymous or even feel anonymous they're more aggressive yeah. toward each other they get more angry um online conversations unfortunately tend to lend themselves to that but if you're you know, sitting across from Uncle Bob, who maybe voted for someone different from you, you can really talk to him about what his life is like and why he feels that way. You may, may not end up agreeing with him, but you'll learn something about his perspective. And that's best done if you're sitting in the same room. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite stories uh, doing this work is a fellow named Daryl Davis. You might have heard of him. He's an African-American musician who's traveled all around the country, all around the world. And he's befriended uh, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of KKK and now former KKK members. And one of the stories he tells is one of the first times this happened, it was a grand wizard uh, in the Southeast. And um, the guy approached him after one of his sets and he said, you know, uh, I like your music. You you play real good. I I didn't think, uh, you, you know, you could play that way. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, I I like it too. Uh, Why don't we grab a beer? And the KKK guy said, you know, don't you know who the hell I am? He's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, let's go grab a beer, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And once you sit down and humanize that person, whatever they look like, whatever their background is, it really, and and you're face to face with them. There's there's more, I don't know, we are a tactile creature at the end of the day. We there's something about human connection that just, uh, can't be communicated through just articulating 240 characters or less. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, I, I kind of got ahead of myself. So um, I, I should ask you if you have any questions for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what type of things do you usually advise in that area of how we can talk about these things without killing each other, like with previous guests or your own philosophy? I'd love to hear it. Yeah, you know, there are a few things and a lot of it is just from doing this 
not doing it very well often, and then trying to learn from that and, and, and do it better, trying to learn from others who have done it better. So one of the things I've learned is emphasizing the relational over the transactional. It's kind of, you know, to, to your point, the transactional means when we're online, even if we have an existing relationship with that person, we fall into the trap of this contest, this transactional mm -hmm. interaction, where I'm going to say the perfect thing, send the perfect rhetorical zinger, and I'm going to win this, uh, this contest. That doesn't do anything. It's very mm -hmm. impulsive, and, and it may, might feel satisfying in the moment, but it really doesn't do anything. Whereas if we're nurturing the relationship, like Monica Guzman and Braver Angels, um, uh, John, John Roush was on recently and reminded me of this. One of the tricks, if you want to call it that, when you're talking to someone is what in your life, uh, tell me about your life. What, what life experiences did you have that led to this position that you now hold? You know, and then it opens up a story so that you can understand the human being underneath that. So that's one of the ways. Other ways is just recognizing our own boiling points, I guess. Um, you know, so if we need to step away, if we need to go do meditation or have some ice cream or something, we can step away so that it doesn't, it doesn't become this, you know, kind of animalistic rage war. Um, but I do find myself, number one, I do try to, when you're a public figure, um, like yourself, it, it's hard to do this all the time, but I do try to get into conversations with people online when there is the context of an existing relationship um, that way if it gets to a certain point and it's getting out of hands you can always say hey uh hey buddy um let's go grab a beer you know like daryl davis said um hey wh why don't we go grab some coffee or something I i'd love to get together for dinner with you because if you're in person there is that um connect real connectedness you know mm -hmm. and there there's there's you're risking something in a way um, but you're connecting in, in a in a more meaningful way. So that's kind of a potpourri of, of some of the things that come to mind. But really, at the end of the day, I'm still learning it. I'm still messing up. <laughs> I'm still struggling with my own um, trajectory and, and, and how this is going. Uh, but we're, we're doing our best to, to, to try to get better each day. So um, I, I wanted to ask you before we close uh, to share a bit about with the audience about a friend of yours. Uh, it was really touching uh, in the acknowledgments, your literary agent, and I think I'm saying this the name correctly, Jill Neerim or Kneerim? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you tell us about Jill and what she meant to you? Sure. Um, and I may tear up. Um, so I first met Jill in 2003, so 20 years ago. Um, I was a young assistant professor. I had always wanted to write a book, so I'd you know, written for my college newspaper, like the idea of, um, you know, writing for a more popular audience. And I was at a, a psychology conference in Boston and talked to some folks. There was a session on, you know, academics writing a popular book and um, really, you know, met, met Jill there, um, founder of her own literary agency, a real uh, trailblazer and just a wonderful, wonderful, warm person. Um, and so she became my my literary agent, um, helped me get uh, my my first book deal, um, and helped me develop the idea for this most recent book because I had been writing books on each generation, each usually each young generation, and um, but I've been getting questions that talks a lot about like, doesn't technology affect all of us? You know what kind of impact is this having on everybody? 
And she said, well, you know what that means? You need to write a book about all the generations. So I was like, wow, that sounds really hard. Um, but makes sense at this point in my career that that's maybe what I'd want to write. And we have the data for it now. So it, that that might be a, a great idea. Um, and Jill died of cancer before I was able to finish the book. Um, she was she was 83. She just never wanted to retire. Um, just such an inspiration. She was so amazing at what she did and loved doing it. Um, so I was cleaning out my files after, a few months after she died in preparation for um, a move. And I found a note that she wrote um, after the process of of selling my first book happened where that process always is going to involve a fair amount of rejection. It turned out happily in the end, but you know, that's just always how that goes. And it was a handwritten note from her clipped to some uh, printed out emails. And it said for your files or your rubbish, here are the emails from the fools who didn't want to offer. <laughs> and I burst out laughing and then started crying because that is her that was her in a nutshell she was amazing she was always in your corner um you know hard negotiator but an extremely warm and wonderful person that's awesome so before we go how can we follow you um you have a sub stack how can we find the sub stack yes. and more information about generations and all your other wonderful wonderful work yeah so my sub stack uh it's, it's brand new i've only done a few posts it's called generation tech so I'm going to use that to post some uh, sometimes original analyses, sometimes, you know, explainers for um, uh, new journal articles that come out, just things that are relevant to generational differences, to the impact of, of technology. Um, some people do those about once a week. Mine's going to be more like once a month because I really want them to be, you know, a bigger, bigger impact. I'm not just going to post on, on little stuff. I'm going to try to have it focus on big stuff. Um, my website is www.jeantwangy.com, and that's got all the stuff about um, all of the books and the um, speaking engagements, too, because I do a lot of, of speaking engagements for parents, uh, for corporations on generations in the workplace, um, on uh, college campuses for my fellow faculty, and also uh, student life staff um, who are kind of on the front lines with Gen Z these days. So... Um, Really enjoying those picking up after after the pandemic. I, again, being able to be with people in in person um, and give talks and hear people laugh. Yeah, really that's awesome. To do again, yeah. You know, it's amazing. My dogs. I'm convinced they know how to read clocks because they get fed mm -hmm. at four o'clock, and uh -huh. they, they both came into my office just like it's almost exactly four o'clock. There you go. Give me crap. They've got the cir circadian rhythm down. <laughs> That's right. Yep. They're spoiled. Uh, so is there anything important I forgot to ask you before we close? I think we covered a lot. It was we great. We did cover a lot of ground. This was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's really great getting to know you personally a lot better after reading so much of your work. So thanks so much for, for doing this. Thank you. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit that subscribe button. Like I said before, the subscribe, rate, review, it really, really does help. And tell a friend about Talk Politics and Religion. Maybe you could tell them, hey, I heard this uh, this conversation with Dr. Jean Twenge, and she talked about the generations. I thought she was totally wrong. What do you think? And you get into a conversation, but try not to kill each other, right? Um, 
But you can find us. We're easy to recommend. It's politicsandreligion.us. That's www.politicsandreligion.us. Or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S is Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion, but with gentleness and respect and have a great week.